This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As healthcare providers, we know the importance of our patients receiving all of their recommended immunizations. When the seven-valent pneumococcal vaccine was introduced, it resulted in a significant decline in pneumococcal pneumonia within the very first year. The decrease in mortality from tetanus and pertussis that's been directly attributed to the immunization has estimated to be over 99%. Yet, it's estimated that a significant number of Americans, over 40%, don't receive the annual influenza vaccine. And as you know, influenza can be deadly. With the influenza season soon to be upon us, we'll be discussing the influenza vaccine and how you can improve your patient's immunization rates. Today's guest is Dr. Robert Jacobson, an expert in immunizations from the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, influenza vaccine and who should actually be receiving this. Everyone. That's a simple short answer. Mm -hmm. Every one of us. Even those uh, not yet six months of age at the time the season starts will be six months of age by the time the season's underway, and so everyone should get the vaccine. There's only one contraindication against the inactivated vaccine, and that's a history of a serious allergic reaction to a previous flu vaccine or one of its components other than eggs. So basically, everyone. So you mentioned eggs. So do people who have an allergy to eggs, are they able to receive this vaccine? Yes, and that's a big change. In the past, we had been telling people with serious egg allergies that they shouldn't get the vaccine, and those people with mild egg allergies, they could only get them in a provider's office. Um, in fact, a flu vaccine was available that didn't, wasn't made from uh, eggs and, uh, in fact, was uh, specifically set aside for those patients. But evidence has mounted up across uh, the countries, across the flu seasons, that uh, people with seri- egg allergies, including those with serious egg allergies, uh, don't need uh, any special protection. That is, they are at no more increased risk for an allergic reaction than a person without a serious egg allergy or allergy. And so they can get the vaccines uh, without uh, fear of getting an allergic reaction. Great. So no more excuses. The elderly those over 65 get a little bit different vaccine. What uh, What's different about that? Well, people 65 years and, uh, and older make fewer antibodies to the standard flu vaccine and it appears to not work as well to prevent flu hospitalization or death. It does work, but not as well as it would in a younger person. So two vaccines have now been designed, uh, particularly for people 65 years and older. One is the flu zone high-dose vaccine that has four times the amount of flu vaccine in it per dose and has been shown to uh, do a much better job in producing antibodies. And actually now we have studies that show it does a much better job in preventing the flu and its complications in that age group. Another new flu vaccine that we have for people 65 years and older is the Fluad vaccine. Uh, This vaccine is adjuvanted, hence its name, and it also makes higher rates of antibodies. We suspect it will too, just like flu zone high dose, have um, uh, uh, lower rates of flu and flu complications among those 65 years Mm -hmm. and older who receive it. All right. 
Well, we know the influenza virus changes annually and the vaccine changes annually. So how, does, how is it determined how this uh, vaccination changes and how is it put together? That's a great question. Across the world, the vaccine, um, the, the virus that causes the flu is actually a series of viruses of related strains. There's two A strains and two B strains that circulate. In fact, occasionally uh, uh, will mutate over time as they travel from China across the globe to land in our country um, uh, half a year to a year later. Uh, this migration of the flu viruses is monitored by the World Health Organization. Um, it has enlisted over 100 countries that have national influenza centers that detect what strains are going through their country. And using this information, the World Health Organization pulls together experts in September and February to um, determine what vaccine should be used in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and then in February, what vaccine should be used the next season in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, the Food and Drug Administration makes the final decision for our country, but takes very seriously the recommendations of the World Health Organization as to what should be the A strains and what should be the B strains this coming season. But there are some educated guesses going on here. Oh, yes. This is based on what they're detecting and what how the strains have been shifting. So it's a very careful um, estimation of what's going to be circulating in the coming season. And I can recall some years where the product put out was not as effective as it could have been. It varies. I guess I would take issue with as much as it could have been because I think they do a great job. Sure. It's just that we are working with a virus that is actually evolving, um, that is changing over time. Um, and because of that, all we can do is really predict in February what we're going to see in December, uh, um, more than a year, almost a year later, um, because it can go through a great deal of change. Now, why do we need so much time? We're actually making a brand new vaccine for the coming year uh, that's going to contain those four predicted strains or those three predicted strains. And it has to be grown up in chicken's eggs uh, where we can grow the virus and make the antigen to safely make a vaccine that has lot to lot consistency. That's a tough order mm -hmm. and it's basically a race against time. Sure. So here at Mayo, we generally release the influenza vaccine sometime in October. But patients could go to retail pharmacies and basically get an immunization year-round. How do they know if it's for the current year or the previous year? When is the current year's vaccine released? Perhaps up to 40% of adults get their flu vaccine outside their doctor's offices and often at pharmacies. These pharmacies are very careful to watch the expiration date. Last year's vaccine all expired by June 30th of this year. No pharmacist would give an expired vaccine, but the companies that are making flu vaccines are releasing lots as early as August or September. Mayo Clinic here in Rochester has to deal with the, um, the need to vaccinate 80, 90, 100,000 people and wants to make sure it has stock to have vaccine available every single day once it announces that the vaccine's available and can't 
go from lot to lot with it, uh, or or from week to week, not knowing if it had adequate supply. So we actually wait till mid October until we have that mm-hmm. substantial supply. But pharmacies don't have those same constraints. Right. Um, here's our teaching. Study after study has shown that um, the vaccine is very effective. There are a few studies that show that there may be waning in certain age groups. None of these studies have been consistent as to which age group or whether waning occurs or not. But we do know this. Even if 10, 11% of our people 65 years and older chose to get the vaccine a few months later, we would see an increase in hospitalizations from the flu. So the experts teach us as soon as your patient can get the vaccine, they should get the vaccine. When it becomes available, get vaccinated. Don't fear the waning. Don't delay. Don't put it off. So that answers my next question, because I think this is a myth. But I was told many years ago that if you get the vaccine too early in the fall, it may wear off by late spring. Not really true. That's not true. Okay. So anytime the current vaccine, get it. Yes. All right. Today's podcast is sponsored by Mayo Clinic's online CME. Go to ce.mayo.edu slash online CME to see the full list of course offerings. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever app you're currently using. The most common thing I get from a patient in terms of uh, resisting getting the influenza vaccine is, oh, doc, I got it last year and I, I got the flu. So I know how I answer that. Let me see how you answer that. Maybe you've got a better answer than I do. You know, the, the issue is the confusion of coincidence and cause effect. We human beings tend to associate what happened with the one thing that we did differently that was out of the ordinary and gain the flu vaccine once a year is an event that we remember and we tend to associate things with it. That's why it's so careful, so important that we do careful randomized controlled trials that really take, um, uh, handle this coincidence and this need to look for a cause and effect. Uh, A beautiful study done up in the Twin Cities with the veterans at the VA hospital proved this to us with the flu vaccine. They took hundreds of veterans, 65 years and older, and I got them to volunteer for a NEAT study. The study took half of them, gave them the flu vaccine, the other half, now they didn't know who was getting the flu vaccine or not, but the other half got uh, saline, salt mm-hmm. water, as a placebo. Um, everyone got an injection, everyone got a diary and more to record their symptoms. Did they get sick? What happened? Uh, did they have to go to the doctor? And then two weeks later, all the people in the study came back and the people who got the flu vaccine got the placebo. The people who got the placebo got the flu vaccine. Once again, not knowing which was which, they kept a diary for another two weeks. Then at the end of the month, the investigators who were blinded just as the patients were to what people got were then unblinded. And lo and behold, there was a percent of people who were never as sick as they were after that injection, who had a fever, who had a bad headache, who had vomiting, who had to go to emergency room. And it was the same percent whether they got the salt water 
or the flu vaccine, whether they got it as the first dose or second dose. The only side effect that stood out with those who got the flu vaccine instead of the saltwater injection was a sore arm, more soreness with the flu vaccine than the saline. It was a beautiful demonstration of the power of coincidental thinking mm -hmm. and the need to do randomized controlled trials. So if nothing else, don't get the saline vaccine. <laughs> that's, that's what I would do. So what do we tell patients who say only sick, older, frail patients have complications from influenza? That's just not true. Actually, last year we believe, well, actually over the last six years, 30 to 45% of the hospitalizations from flu were in people less than 65 years of age. 15 to 45% of the deaths from flu were in people less than 65 years of age. Um, in fact, the majority of children who die from the flu um, didn't get the flu vaccine and had no underlying reason why the flu should have behaved so badly in them. It's a problem that people associate the flu with uh, those who have higher risk for complications such as those 65 years and older or those with chronic medical conditions, and they do have a harder time. But in fact, five to 20% of us get the flu every year. And a beautiful study done up in the Twin Cities, a different one, mm -hmm. actually took healthy young adults uh, from 18 to about 45 years of age, and over the few years followed them for whether they got the vaccine or not and what happened. And what they found was on average, one less six day from work, one less medical visit a year uh, to the doctor. When you think about that, those are healthy young adults. Now, from day to day, we primary care doctors don't diagnose the flu. We'll see a sore throat with a fever, we'll rule out strep, but we won't do a flu test. Sure. But for all we know, particularly during flu season, there's a good chance that sore throat and fever was uh, the flu. Same thing for rule out pneumonia. Uh, we, we, as a rule, only test for flu when we're sending the patient up to the hospital ward for, for admission, basically to sort out isolation. Um, we, we leave our patients thinking the flu is not around and is not a cause of the problems, but it's frankly with us every year. Yeah. All right. How good are healthcare providers at getting influenza vaccines? Well, if you mean, do they get the vaccine themselves? Right. Last year showed 96% of physicians got the vaccine. That's Nin much higher than I thought. Yes, and it's much higher than it used to be. In the 80s, it was down in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. But times have really changed. 92% uh, of pharmacists got the vaccine last year. 90% of the nurses, about 88% of the nurse practitioners. Um, in general, those people in the know get the flu vaccine. The problem is we do a bad job with our patients. Yeah. That's our next topic. How good are we as healthcare providers getting our patients to have the influenza vaccine? It's all over the place. Some providers do a really good job and some providers make it sound like it's a choice or an option or don't even bring it up at a visit. Yeah. We found in our practice that what really helped was taking it out of the physician's hands and putting it in the nursing hands and our immunization rates went way up as part of a protocol, and we had a much higher uh, immunization rate. Here in Minnesota, we call those nursing protocols. In other parts of the country, we call them standing orders. Study after study has shown whatever you want done every single time to your patient, stop asking your 
physician or nurse practitioner to do it. Instead, make it an office procedure that the nurse does. That works with vaccines. It is dramatic how well it works. And Mayo, of course, is a big promoter for nursing protocols to help vaccinate the patients and to use every visit to vaccinate. Frankly, while the patient's waiting for us, our patients can get vaccinated through a standing order or nursing protocol. It's yeah. very effective. Now, we've tried a variety of things, or at least several things have been tried. Do we get prompts on our electronic medical record when patients need immunizations? Uh, we've had extended office hours during influenza season, um, correspondence to patients and postcards, uh, public service announcements. Are these things effective? Well, some of those are and some aren't. For example, the point of care prompts that you're a, uh, a medical record, com the computerized medical record allows you to have, are actually have been demonstrated to work over and over again. They actually um, make a difference. Um, providers want their patients vaccinated, but often in the heat of a visit where the patient's there for a different reason or you realize through your history or through your exam that we've got a big problem here, suddenly the vaccine goes off to the side to be something to be done, but not high on your list, and it falls off the list. The point of care prompt helps get it back on the list and keep on the list, and it has been shown to be very effective. Um, those people with electronic health records who have not had their practice turn on these prompts need to seriously reconsider that. Uh, this is not intuitive. This is not something physicians are very good at keeping at the forefront, particularly when they're dealing with an, an ill patient who has many concerns. Another intervention that works, you mentioned the reminders. The reminders are recalls. These actually have been shown to work. They're very effective. Um, that's why our dentists use them. That's why our veterinarians use them. Um, we find them awkward to do. We, we um, often will worry that the patient is being overwhelmed or bombarded. We've got to keep the uh, uh, communications going for a number of preventive options. And so it becomes difficult to organize and continue this. But here at Mayo, we found such reminder recalls for vaccines very effective okay. and strongly recommend them. Now, extended hours, on their own, they do nothing. They can help a practice that's struggling with getting all its patients seen during the busy flu vaccine season. That's why Mayo practices extended hours in walk-in clinics. But it's basically um, an aid to the practice. The people who attend those are the people who are going to get the vaccine anyway, uh, but you didn't have enough appointment slots for them, or it became more of a hassle for the practice to, ma to manage those during the day. But just extending hours won't bring the patients in that weren't otherwise going to get vaccinated. And as much as we love them, PSAs, public service announcements, commercials, billboards, placards, flyers in the waiting room, flyers in the exam office don't work. They look like they'd work. Those of us who want to vaccinate feel good when we see them. Those of us who have questions about the vaccine actually get a little upset and uh, get a little more resistant. So I wouldn't rely on educational efforts like that uh, to improve your vaccine rates. Okay. Now, I've heard you speak on immunizations many times, and I've been impressed with the number of immunizations that you have to give your patients. That's like a gazillion in the first year <laughs> or something like that. But um, So you've got to be quite skilled at this. What techniques have you found most useful? The most important thing every provider should recall is that their recommendations matter. No matter how educated your patient or parent is, um, they're coming to you for your advice. They respect 
the position you're in. And I find that when I make clear my recommendations, my patients and their parents are more likely to follow those recommendations. Actually, study after study has shown with vaccines, including the flu vaccine, the clinician's recommendations matter. Now, strong recommendations matter more. They have more impact. What do I mean by a strong recommendation? Well, the language of a pediatrician or family physician with a parent of a child under two talking about vaccines has been found to be very different from the language we use with our adult patients or our adolescent patients. When we're talking to a parent of a child less than two, we use something called presumptive language. The nurse will be in to get the vaccines done. The nurse will do the hearing and vision after I leave. Uh, you need to go up to the desk and schedule the follow-up visit. But by the time, and we use that 70% of the time, and frankly, it's been shown to be remarkably effective in improving one's vaccination rates with one's patients. In fact, study after study and trial after trial has shown that that's a very effective means. Presumptive language is the language that assumes you've come to me for my advice, and I strongly recommend this. So as a matter of fact, this is what we do next. You're going to hop up on the table, and I'm going to examine you. We'll send you down for a chest x-ray. Now, by the time a patient's an adolescent, we start backing off from that language. With vaccines, we start making it sound like a choice. What are your thoughts about the HPV vaccine? Uh, what are you going to do with the flu vaccine? It's almost as though we're saying, do you want fries with that? We're making it an option like, mm -hmm. well, you happen to be here and we happen to have a boatload of uh, flu and syringes. Any interest? Um, that's a dangerous way to talk. It may sound like motivational interviewing. It may sound like shared decision making, but it's not. It's actually an abandonment of your professional responsibility because you're making it sound like either getting vaccinated or not is a viable option. I think of vaccines like stop signs and, uh, and yellow lights and red lights. Uh, I, I don't turn to the person uh, that I'm driving and say, what are your thoughts about that upcoming stoplight? We need to remember that our patients need to know what things do we strongly recommend and what things really are options. If it's a choice between three statins and they're all reasonable but it might depend on patient values and preferences, Yes, that's shared decision-making. If it's a habit that needs to be broken at home over, over the coming year and not something that you can do in your office, yes, you need to know if they're ready to quit smoking or begin a new exercise program. But when you're in the office and they've come for your opinion, they need to hear what you feel strongly about, and you need to use language that signals that strong recommendation. All right, so how would you summarize the importance of patients receiving an influenza vaccine, and what are the best recommendations you can give our audience in terms of how to increase the immunization rates? Every patient in your practice needs a flu vaccine, every patient. So you should use every visit you have with your patient to make clear your strong recommendation that they get it that day. Uh, last year, even with our relatively poor vaccination rate across the country, 35% or so, we reduced the number of illnesses by 7 million, number of office visits by 3.5 million, number of hospitalizations by 100,000, and a number of deaths by 8,000. And that's while we're doing a poor job. Let's do a better job this year. Use every visit. Make your strong recommendation clear. Say the nurse will be in with the vaccine. Do you have any questions for me? We've been discussing the influenza vaccine and techniques to raise the vaccine rates in our patients with Dr. Robert Jacobson, a pediatrician in the Department of Pediatrics at Mayo Clinic. 
Bob, you've given us some excellent uh, recommendations. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. And thank you for having me here. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.